everybody to another episode of the talking space podcast this is talking space episode 808 for the week of monday september 5th 2016 i'm sawyer rosenstein and joining me tonight is gene mcculka welcome gene good evening sawyer and welcome back expedition 48 yes we will get to that in just a second but first we have to welcome back to the show cassie tamanini aka craft Lass. Good evening, Sawyer. Wow, this has been a packed week. Ooh, yes it has. And also, welcome back, Kat Robson. Lovely to be here. Really excited to talk about everything that has happened recently. Oh yes, we've got quite a few topics that we know that you're itching to hear about. One of them, of course, being some SpaceX news for that. You're going to have to stick with us till a little later in the episode because we've got so many other amazing stories that also need attention too. So keep listening for that. Also, some of you, based on when this is being released, are probably waiting for the update on OSIRIS-REx. OSIRIS-REx is a mission that is scheduled to launch from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station on this Thursday, September 8th, 2016. It is a two-hour launch window between 7 and 9 p.m. Eastern Time with the goal of going hashtag to Bennu and back, which is an asteroid, to go around it, take some pictures, grab a sample, and return back to Earth by 2023. Again, these are recorded ahead of time. Today's recording date is Tuesday, September 6th, meaning we don't know if it's happened yet or not. But the good news, by waiting, means I will be down at Cape Canaveral covering the event, so... Next episode, we will have full coverage on it from the event, including all the science briefings, all the behind-the-scenes information, and some of the extra things that they give media, including a preview of the Orion capsule that will be used for EM-1. So lots of good stuff coming up. But let's stick with what's happening right now on tonight's recording date as we speak, and that is the return of the Expedition 48 crew from the International Space Station. After 172 days in space, the Soyuz TMA-20M made a safe landing in Kazakhstan, bringing back three crew members, NASA's Jeff Williams, as well as Roscosmos, Alexei Ovchinin, and Oleg Skripochka. The three crew members are back safely, and Alexei, even getting a special gift upon landing, a whole watermelon. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting gift. It was so strange to look up and see that. <laughs> yes, welcome to Kazakhstan. Here's your watermelon. I gotta say, though, that sure sounds refreshing after that descent. <laughs> really, and all yes. that time in space. <laughs> yeah, where you only get fresh fruit when you get a resupply mission. Yeah, I don't blame you. 
Yeah, exactly. We're talking about 172 days grand total in space between the, the three crewmen members on this increment anyway. And uh, Jeff Williams really had his work cut out for him, two EVAs and all that. But uh, grand job and uh, welcome home, guys. Uh, wonderful job up there. And I've got to say, we need to make sure to put a link to one of the pictures that was taken as the Soyuz disappeared into the haze over the steppes of Kazakhstan. I know a lot of people were disappointed to not see the landing, but I thought it was actually really poetic and beautiful and unique. And I don't know, the still image that I think it was the ISS tweeted it. It was so beautiful. It just, it absolutely took my breath away to watch that capsule just disappear. And then the haze burn off and it appear out on the steps. It was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what's behind the haze? Oh, you know, just a spacecraft turning from space. We love sunrise launches, but there's something about a sunrise landing that's pretty cool too. So, hey, Sawyer, we've got another uh, crew coming up to uh, the International Space Station in the not-too-distant future, no? Correct. Uh, as of right now, there are three crew members aboard the International Space Station, Anatoly Ivanishin of Roscosmos, Kate Rubens of NASA, and Takuya Onishi of JAXA, launching in... The launch currently scheduled for September 23rd, 2016, is NASA astronaut Robert Kimbrough, and then Roscosmos astronauts Andrei Borisenko and Sergei Riskyov. That's right. They're probably waiting to launch the next cargo flight, which would be the Antares return to flight, until after we have six individuals on board the International Space Station. So this way, you know, all the work can be distributed and, you know, all the cargo can be offloaded in the most uh, efficient manner. Uh, the reason why they had this holdup for OA-5 was, quite frankly, the work that was going on on board the ISS. Two spacewalks. We had a scheduled, uh, I believe, the crew departure here on Expedition 48 and so on. So we wanted to get those out of the way and then the new crew increment for Expedition 49. So... I know Orbital ATK had Antares originally scheduled for a return flight in mid-September. I don't think that's going to happen. They'll probably wait till after Expedition 49 is pretty much settled in. My bet is probably mid-October. And also I should point out that this will be the last time that we will see the TMA-M series of Soyuz's. After this, it's back to the Soyuz-MS series. That's right. The next launch will be the Soyuz-MS-02. So as we welcome them home, we now move on to other news that is making waves in the space world. Gravitational waves. Yes, indeed. We've been following the LIGO, or I should say a LIGO story for a while now. It's having a ripple effect, just as we predicted. Some of you may know, and you may remember, that I know this show covered it before I was on. In 2010, they did the Decadal Survey for astrophysics and a project known as LISA, which is a space version of LIGO, essentially, ranked number third on the list of priorities. And the first item on the list was the W-first mission. Well, that was then, this is now. Now we have a LIGO showing that we can detect gravitational waves by using an interferometer and there are very good reasons to set up a large interferometer in space. The original LISA mission 
had been basically scrapped because as the third priority on NASA's astrophysics list, it wasn't getting enough NASA support to do the full project. So ESA had streamlined it and turned it into ELISA. And they were moving ahead with some NASA participation. A report came out just two weeks ago in Physics Today that basically says we need to move LISA to the top of the priority list. This has become the most important field to pursue, and it needs to be a priority, and NASA should get more involved and should even consider bumping up the funding to where the original LISA idea can come to fruition. The other thing that affected this that's happened in the past few years was the LISA Pathfinder mission was a complete success. It was launched last December, and it proved the feasibility of key technologies. So knowing what we know now, we need to change our priorities. And part of the same report was actually bringing WFIRST down in the list to third place. This could have interesting implications for the future of these programs. They expected WFIRST to go through an assessment once the initial construction of the spacecraft has happened. So I don't know if it will get reviewed at that point, but basically they're completely changing the recommendations for what NASA's priorities should be. That's incredible. Cassie, why don't you kind of encapsulate why this is important for us? Well, Cassie, the whole idea is we're talking about how the universe works, correct? Indeed. It's actually proving several concepts of physics to be true that were entirely theoretical in the past. So I would say that's why it matters. It's like a what? The Galileo moment, you know, but it still turns. Yeah. Very well put. (laughs) Very well put. So hopefully... This report will spur NASA. I, I think we'll have to see what happens with WFIRST because obviously that's part of the same budget. Like I said, there are now doubts that that mission is actually a place to focus on. And of course, these things are constantly reviewed all the way through, but it'll be interesting to see what they have to say as soon as they decide how much of a risk WFIRST is as a budgetary item. But I want to see, personally, this is an opinion show, I want to see NASA put this money into LISA. I think that LISA is where it needs to go, and we know that now. So it's a safe bet. Those are rare in physics. Yeah, that, that's something you don't get very often. But, I mean, it's a great mission. It's, like you said, we're taking concepts that were literally just theories and finally being able to prove them. That's the beauty of science. I love science. So here's hoping that that gets that funding. Speaking of beautiful, there was another mission that I would classify as beautiful that captured the attention of the world. And that was when the Philae lander landed on a comet. Comet 67P. I'm not going to pronounce the full name. We'll leave it at that. It landed and it sent back some amazing pictures and then we had lost contact with it. Well, finally we have figured out where exactly it had landed. It explains a lot of why it didn't get as much power, but thanks to the technology and another mission, we now have a picture of Philae on the comet. And that's thanks to... Rosetta! Right? Right. Rosetta is slowly getting closer and closer 
to Comet 67P, whose full name, I believe, is Rubber Ducky Comet. So on one of those passes, you know, Rosetta has been taking pictures of the comet from very close, and they were actually able to find Philae sort of tucked under the ledge of a big rock, which, you know, obviously we knew that it must be in shade and that it was in shade because it wasn't able to get enough battery power, but to actually see Philae on the surface is really amazing because I have to think it's like, did it, was it, which of the Mars orbiters, I can't really remember, but they recently found Beagle, like where the landing site of Beagle was. You know, to find something that, that was lost is a really incredible feeling, whether it's a spacecraft or puppy or a picture or a letter or anything. It's, it's amazing to find something lost. So we all followed this mission and, and we all felt it when Philae had to say goodbye. On, and so to know where Philae is at is a pretty incredible and amazing discovery. And to find it so quickly, really we might never have another chance to image this comet. And especially considering it was basically playing hide and seek. <laughs> yeah, Cassie, it's a pretty good analogy. It also confirmed the, the, the attitude of the, of the spacecraft. In fact, I'm looking at the photograph right now. It's really, really been in a crevice back there. It looks like it burrowed itself into the comet, practically. Yeah, and where it is in Abydos, which is the region on, on the comet, it just confirms what we all thought the situation was to begin with, that when it landed, it bounced a few times, and then it got into a crevice somehow, and because of that crevice, it could not get full saturation on its solar panels, and thus the premature shutdown of the spacecraft. And you know, Kat mentioned how it's always great to find lost things, the only thing better than finding lost things is finding out that your hypothesis about what happened was absolutely correct. Yeah, exactly. It, it, yeah. I you mean, nailed really... it. That's exactly what I was getting at. That's exactly <laughs> what I was getting at. And also, this is pretty good timing in terms of the find because Rosetta's nearing the end of its scheduled mission too, right? Yeah. On the finale, the Rosetta finale, as put by Issa, is set for the end of this month, actually, on September 30th. So ESA will direct Rosetta into a controlled descent and it will join Philae on the surface. And once it hits the surface, its science operations will end. That's amazing. And again, just, you know, less than a month to go until the end of the mission and it found Philae. So what exactly are they going to be doing with the lander? Is it a soft landing on it or is there science going with that? What exactly is the deal with the... <laughs> end of Rosetta's life. So a controlled descent is uh, engineer speak for crashing the spacecraft into a comet, <laughs> which is not unusual, uh, not an unusual way for spacecraft to meet their end. You might remember that this recently happened with the spacecraft at Mercury, Messenger. It has happened with spacecraft at the moon. So it is an accepted way to end a spacecraft mission. Well, there you go. It's going to be a very fitting end for a spectacular mission. Congratulations to Issa on that one. That's, that's a mission that will go down in the history books for sure. And now to find Philae, that's phenomenal, finding Philae. Pretty much everything except for the bouncing of Philae has just been nominal with that mission and even better. So huge congratulations to Issa. I echo that 100%. This entire mission from Rosetta with, with Philae has just been phenomenal from, from so many standpoints, and, and they really deserve 
incredible, huge congratulations. The mission, when it landed, it was almost like an Apollo 11 moment because this was the first time really humanity was kind of deliberately touching a comet and trying to, to figure out what the nature of these things are. And again, we're this uh, it's just like Osiris-Rex. Uh, where is the water coming from? What comprises this whole thing? Did comets play an active part in bringing water to Earth, for instance, and maybe creating the oceans and so on? So it was sort of a, an Apollo 11 moment, and I think it's going to go down in history almost, almost like that. If anybody hasn't seen this yet, there's a neat video that was put together to celebrate the mission. It's called Ambition. Uh, it really, really puts the whole, not only just the uh, uh, the Rosetta mission into perspective, but I think uh, it gives the reason as to why we're doing all of this to begin with, why we're reaching out, why we're, why we're going to space. We are the cosmos seeking to know itself. That's pretty deep. I was just going to go with something a lot less deep and a lot more simple and... Uh... Here at Talking Space, I dub the Phenomenal Philae and Rockin' Rosetta. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> All right. The poet now, and the comedian. I, I try. I'm waiting for the foam brick from Gene, but anyway. <laughs> it takes it takes all kinds from to make Talking Space work. <laughs> yes, you've got the poetic and then the pathetic. <laughs> and dear listener we will let you decide which one it is <laughs> all right uh speaking speaking of lost spacecraft can you hear me in your left ear can you hear me in your right ear if so then you're listening in stereo which nasa has found one of its stereos and we're not talking like a 1990s stereo beatbox we're talking the spacecraft Stereo B. It's been found, right? Yes, it has been. So Stereo B, or Stereo Behind, uh, was shut off back in October of 2014 in order to test its command loss timer, which is basically an automatic reset button that restarts the spacecraft after 72 hours without contact. It has this because of certain, um, because it's, Around the sun, there are certain times in which we lose contact with the spacecraft that we're planned for. And this was before a planned loss of contact with the spacecraft. Unfortunately, when they turn it off, 72 hours later, Stereo B never came back. And although Stereo B was already beyond its initial mission, which is something that we know commonly happens with NASA spacecraft, that they uh, last longer than they're planned to. <laughs> However... NASA still wanted to be able to communicate, and every month has been attempting to contact Stereo B through the Deep Space Network. And finally, after almost two years of silence, as uh, I believe the New York Times put it, the NASA satellite finally stopped its silent treatment, and NASA was able to gain contact again uh, to find out that Stereo B uh, was turned back on. It had had some battery charging issues. They were able to communicate with the spacecraft in order to fix some of those issues and are planning a burn in order to restabilize the spacecraft because right now it's in a spin. And in order to continue its measurements, it needs to be stabilized once again so it can work in stereo with Stereo A. 
Well, ultimately here, I guess the good news is that we have another eye on the sun, correct? And that these two spacecraft can work in tandem and really, really keep an eye on, uh, on space weather, which I believe was the objective of, uh, of the mission, no? Exactly, Gene. These spacecrafts, the Stereo A and B, are looking at solar flares. And the reason that these spacecraft were so important is that they can give us warning of solar flares that are directly affecting Earth up to three days in advance instead of the half a day we get from the current instruments. And this is important because a really strong solar flare could actually disrupt systems on Earth. It could cause fires on the electric grid, disrupt communication. If it was really bad, and in 1859 there actually was an incident that was so bright that it made the middle of the night look like daylight, it could really have a serious multi-million, even billion-dollar effect on our economy. So the stereo satellites are like an early warning system. So it's really fantastic that we have them both back up, and hopefully Stereo B will be running again soon. Indeed, Kat, we got a little bit of a taste back in 1989 on what that's like, and it's not pretty. I believe the uh, eastern power grid back then was knocked out due to a, a solar flare. The more eyes we have on our closest star, the sun, the better off I think we're all going to be as far as our electronics and, and so on. It'll impact, I mean, the solar flares and CMEs, they'll impact uh, the, the, not only just the power grid, but satellites in orbit. And it, it could be a bad day if a bad one really, really hits. So again, it's good to have uh, more eyes on the sun. Exactly. And it's, you know, always lovely to find your lost spacecraft. Yes, indeed. Two of them now. That's that's amazing. And always don't forget then to keep your phone or iPod or listening device charged and talking space set to automatically download. So if that does happen, you'll have something to listen to when there's no power. Very important. All right. Now we're moving on to another spectacular spacecraft. Do you know which one I'm talking about? It's Juno. Get the joke. I know, that was terrible as well. Anyway, the Juno spacecraft, which recently entered orbit around Jupiter, is finally sending back some of its first spectacular pictures of the planet. And if you've taken a look at them, some of them don't even look like the Jupiter that we've seen in the past, as we're getting new looks from poles and of aurora and all the spectacular stuff, right? Yeah, Sawyer, that's correct. One of the photographs I'm looking at here, this is a, a view from the Juno spacecraft of one of Jupiter's southern lights, and it is a, an infrared image. And when I first saw this, it was you know, the larger version of this, I would swear I was looking right into Dante's Inferno. It was just really, really just, just a dazzling picture. And the funny thing is, Sawyer, the camera that is being used here was really an afterthought. GenoCam was was just sort of a public outreach device. It really wasn't considered to be doing a lot of deep science, but here it is doing exactly that. I really love what the principal investigator of Juno, Scott Bolton, said, because we got our first images of Jupiter's North Pole, which is just amazing. We've never seen it before. And he said, and I'm quoting here, first glimpse of Jupiter's North Pole, and it looks like nothing we have seen or imagined before. Yeah, we're going to have to go ahead and get the catalog of images up on the show notes because they're just absolutely breathtaking. Not bad for an afterthought camera. And by the way, if, if you are really interested, you 
can get on board Genocam. You can basically still plan out what they're going to look at and so on and so forth. So it might might be a good school project for uh, you teachers out there. Or just a good project if you happen to be interested in imaging space. We know that there's a lot of you uh, amateurs out there <laughs> listening to this show. We see a lot of you every year at NEEF, and so we hope you're taking part in this. It's just phenomenal. Every time we send spacecraft to somewhere new or somewhere old in our solar system, we discover something that changes our understanding. Look at what happened with New Horizons and Pluto. And this is changing our understanding of Jupiter as, as again, Scott Bolton here, he says it's bluer in color up there than in other parts of the planet. And there are a lot of storms. There's no sign of the latitudinal bands or zone and belts that we're used to. This image is hardly recognizable as Jupiter. We're seeing signs that clouds have shadows, possibly indicating the clouds are at a higher altitude than other features. Saturn has a hexagon at the North Pole. There is nothing on Jupiter that anywhere near resembles that. The largest planet in our solar system is truly unique. We have 36 more flybys to study just how unique it really is. It's just amazing considering how much we have looked at Jupiter. <laughs> how it's one thing when with New Horizons, it was going somewhere that in many ways, we hadn't gone before, even though we'd had Voyager. This is something that humans have been observing for hundreds of years now, <laughs> and that we still find stuff that is completely unexpected. I'm gobsmacked. Yeah, I mean, good point there, Cass. I mean, we flew by there with Pioneer. We flew by there with Voyager. We hung around there for a while with Galileo. And now we're back with Juno. And as the mission says, we're kind of parting the, the clouds, if you will, trying to figure out what's underneath there. And uh, Cassie, if I'm not mistaken, did, wasn't there somebody at Neef kind of hawking Juno cam? Yes, there was. There was. In fact, if anybody wants to Google it, Christopher Goh is the name of the guy who spoke at Neef, and actually his talk is on YouTube, so we can put that in the show notes for you. Yeah, definitely, definitely do it, because it's, uh, you know, it, it was a neat talk. It got a lot of people interested, and I hope a lot of folks that are interested in astrophotography or just want to play with images from space uh, with Photoshop. Or who aren't scientists who want to do some science, because this is participating in actual science. Look at the images that are coming back that were totally unexpected, that were are not the focus of this mission at all and yet we're learning a lot and you can actually participate it you don't need it any degrees you can do it if you're in elementary school you can do it if you're retired so get involved amen citizen science is a beautiful thing and thankfully more people are getting involved with it so that allows citizen science in case you're not sure allows you any citizen to get involved in real world science and JunoCam is a perfect example of that so definitely Definitely get involved with that if you can. All right. So now we're getting towards the juicy stuff. Have you been missing your space policy talk on Talking Space? Well, we've got you covered because on this past Thursday, September 1st, the Office of the Inspector General, I know we talked about them recently, well, they released another report, this one talking about NASA's commercial crew program. Uh, their final report, as you can imagine, just like the other one, 
if we're talking about it, wasn't very happy. What they had found was that there have been major delays, as we all know, with Boeing and SpaceX getting their commercial crew program up and running so that they can start sending astronauts to the International Space Station. NASA's original goal when they had proposed it was that they would have the two companies flying by 2015. In case you've noticed, it's 2016, and that hasn't happened just yet. They say in the report that past funding shortfalls, quote-unquote, have contributed to the delay. Technical challenges with the contractor spacecraft designs are now driving the schedule slippages, close quote. They go on to mention Boeing with their issues for launch vibrations, SpaceX delays with change in capsule design, uh, and other things that we'll talk about later now. But both companies also are trying to be safe. And in response to this report, Bill Gerstemeyer of NASA said, in short, I'm paraphrasing of course here, we understand that yes, we are now three years behind as we are planning for 2018 to have all these up and flying. But the most important thing is safety of the crew. So yeah, it's taking longer, but safety of the crew is most important. The one big thing that they really mentioned about this and what it comes down to is of course, the dollar signs, the money. The big thing they mentioned is that by pushing this to 2018, it has cost an additional $490 million to pay for the extra Soyuz seats through 2018, especially with the price now being $82 million. One quote that I do want to read directly from it that also emphasizes this that they raised as a major problem was, quote, between 2006 and 2018, NASA will pay Roscosmos approximately $3.4 billion, billion with a B, to ferry 64 NASA and partner astronauts to and from the ISS in its Soyuz spacecraft, at prices ranging from approximately $21.3 million to $81.9 million for each round trip. That's a broad price range, and $3.4 billion over these last 12 years now. Thoughts? Yeah, number one, I wonder what John McCain has to say about that. He was the one that uh, was really, really pounding on United Launch Alliance for their use of the RD-180 engine and paying Putin and his cronies, what was it, to the tune of $32 million to buy the RD-180 to keep the Atlas V in the air. And um, hearing that NASA now is paying, what, again, Sawyer, what, three point five what was it 3.2 3.4 million 3.4 billion 3.4 billion since 2006 gee i wonder what he, we would say about that the reason for the spacex delay in their capsule design was they had to redesign it for a water landing rather than a ground-based landing and there was some concerns about the capsule taking in excessive water and so on. The other thing, too, that the report kind of scraped NASA for was the NASA safety review process basically was taking too long. Boeing and SpaceX were conducting their own safety reviews and reporting that data onto NASA. And the report, I'll quote here, quote, we found significant delays in NASA's evaluation and approval of these hazard reports and related requests for variances from NASA requirements that increase risk and costly design. It wasn't just the contractors in this case, too. NASA had a little bit of egg to wipe off its face here, too. The recommendations that the 
NASA IG made to go ahead and try to improve uh, the commercial crew program and its oversight, they recommended that the uh, Associate Administrator for, for Human Spaceflight, and I'm quoting here, implement procedures to monitor the, the timeliness of NASA's review process for hazards and reports to reduce that risk to the program, and two, to coordinate with both Boeing and SpaceX to document a path to timely resolutions for those variance requests. And as you pointed out, so our NASA managers basically concurred with everything. But the the idea is that we're coming down, down to the wire here, and I believe past 2018, by law, we cannot order any more Soyuz seats. So that law may have to be revisited, I think, in the event that um, we don't have any Soyuz seats to order anymore because by law we can't. And if this process goes any further, you know, and we go into 2019 on this, we we may be looking at a situation where the International Space Station does not have a U.S. presence on it. And that's a disquieting prospect. Yeah, that that's a bit scary, you know, especially since we've been talking about the commercial crew program for years. As with most NASA programs, it does tend to slip back a bit. But now, obviously, they have an obligation, and with this being trying to end the reliance on Russians, we need to get things up and running. The question is, in my personal, you know, the question that I want to ask you guys is, sure, they've laid out things that they suggest NASA should do, but what should NASA do, and what could NASA have done to make this go any faster? Because it seems like the problems are all with SpaceX and Boeing. I don't think it's totally NASA's fault here. I agree the contractors probably have had their own schedule delays and so on and so forth. But I think, too, it's resources. Back uh, in the beginning of the program, the program was underfunded, plain and simple. And had we had those, you know, the proper allocation going forward, I don't think we'd be in this, this mess. But uh, it's just the... It's just the corner we painted ourselves in after we decided that we were going to terminate shuttle after the ISS was officially considered fully constructed. And we really should have, and, and this is just me, retained at least one of those birds for launching maybe once or twice a year up to the International Space Station. I realize it would have been quite an expense, and I realize we just don't want to pay essentially for one vehicle while you know we're trying to develop really three more we've got the CST100 Starliner the, the SpaceX Crew Dragon and uh, the Orion multipurpose crew vehicle which next week we're going to get into because the NASA IG just today released a, uh, a report on NASA's management of the Orion multipurpose crew vehicle program you know you know we'll Gene though I do have to I have to say I have to disagree with you as much as I loved shuttle and I loved shuttle. I think that the the reasons behind discontinuing shuttle beyond some safety concerns with shuttle itself were important. NASA's goal is to push frontiers and to push boundaries when it comes to human spaceflight. And as a low earth orbit launch provider, their budget was too constrained to do what NASA does best. Yeah. I understand your argument and I understand where you're coming from, 
But I think that there's a point in which shuttle became a crutch that didn't allow us to, or allow NASA to go beyond or go to the next frontier. Well, we've been doing that for 40 years. I mean, we've been stuck in low Earth orbit for 40 years, years really, exactly. with Skylab and exactly. Shuttle. Exactly. However, and we're stuck there because we're spending so much money on a space transport system that cannot take us beyond low Earth orbit. So I, will, I, I think I, it was I, time for Shuttle. Like, as much as I love Shuttle, it was time. You know, foam strikes, lots of other issues. You know, the, the fleet was aging, and it was time to do something new. Yes, okay. it's, it's really unfortunate that we're paying Russia a lot of money to get to low Earth orbit right now. And it's really unfortunate that there's going to be more delays in, in commercial crew. But it, it was time to move on. Before we go any further, I will tell you the real reason why. Everybody blames the current sitting president for the defeat of shuttle. Everybody blames the past president for the defeat of shuttle. That was completely and totally wrong on both counts. The reason why we went to shuttle, quite frankly, is the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. There was a recommendation in there that if we were going to be flying shuttle past a 10-year period of time, that each one of the birds would have to be recertified. And to recertify all of them would essentially cost, well, to recertify one of them would essentially cost the same amount as building a new one because you'd have to go into sections in the orbiter that nobody had really visited in, good Lord, in some cases since the vehicles had left Palmdale. So that was the real reason. It was cost, plain and simple. And nobody at that point was really thinking the moon or Mars or anything like that. The shuttle program, with all due respect, we all thought we were going to just fly that for about 10 years and then go back to the moon or, or, or go to Mars or so on. And Wayne Hale actually even wrote that in his blog. He fully expected that to happen. Instead, past presidents and past administrations and even Congress have just basically used shuttle as a sort of like, okay, we're flying, we're doing something, and that's really about it, and used it as an excuse for a space program at a point where we didn't really know what the heck we wanted to do in space. All we wanted to do was build a reusable and hopefully cheap means of getting there, which shuttle failed to do. I mean, yeah, there is the whole should have ended, shouldn't have ended the shuttle program, and that definitely is a big part of it. But I think part of it is also NASA's, a lot of NASA's uncertainty. They knew that, yeah, we're going to move on from shuttle onto Orion and now Space Launch System instead of Ares. They didn't know where. They knew we need to keep going at the International Space Station. After sh- it was shuttle, and then it's like, okay, now we need to figure out what we're going to do. And of course, commercial, I agree, is the correct way to go for right now because we need to keep our presence aboard the space station. But the focus became more on cargo, I feel like, and less on crew. And now because of that, yes, we have the cargo running, which is phenomenal, but we're behind on getting that crude part up. And now NASA's sort of dug themselves into the hole where finally now they have to decide, okay, what are we going to do? They pick the commercial crew, and by that point they're already running late. And I'm worried that the same thing is going to happen when it comes to final destinations for Orion and SLS. You're among friends there, Sawyer. I'm hoping that we come to our senses soon and go ahead and say, yeah, we are going to Mars. I know we've got those long, uh, the journey to Mars, you know, mission profile and so on. That extends out to 2036, which gives us a lot of time to solve some human and physiological, biological, and psychological problems and also get our 
technology together, but 2036 is a long time, and uh, sitting presidents have a tendency to muck things up. So we'll just have to see after the election what happens. Because here's the problem. Yes, that's a long time away, the 2030s. 2015 has passed. 2018, in science terms, is a very short time away. Albeit one presidential election away, it is still very short time away. And they only now have two years to get everything up and running. And with some of the setbacks that have been happening, I'm not sure that's going to happen. Yeah, I have a feeling that law is going to have to be revised. Unfortunately, I agree. And I think a large part of that is because Boeing has already said, yes, we're going to be pushing ours back. SpaceX, I have a feeling, is probably going to have to say the same thing, especially after what happened this past week. I know this is what you've all been waiting for. On September 1st, a Falcon 9 rocket was being prepared for basically a dress rehearsal of the launch. They fire up the engines to make sure everything is working and good to go, and once that gets passed, they then move on to the launch a few days later. The launch was scheduled for early that Saturday morning on September 3rd, 2016, so this was their dress rehearsal for it, where they fire up the engines. The static fire test, as it's called. About eight minutes before the scheduled actual lighting up of the engines, there was some form of an anomaly, as SpaceX put it, involving the area near the liquid oxygen tank of the second stage. We don't know exactly what the cause is as of this recording date. We know that's the general area that SpaceX is reporting it happened. That's the general area that it appears in the video footage, followed by a large explosion and then the fairing, which was oddly enough attached, which is atypical, falling and destroying the $238 million satellite that was attached. Unfortunately, pretty bad day again for SpaceX. What are your thoughts on what happened? I agree. It was a really bad day. And I think the worst part of this is the largest loss. The loss of the payload was completely preventable. For me, looking at this and finding out the payload was on top for the static test fire and that they decided to add the payload against the wishes of their insurers just to save a day in the launch preparation time, those are the kind of mistakes that lose things more valuable than a satellite. And that, to me, was the most disappointing part. And I think it kind of speaks to some troubling cultural decisions that are made at SpaceX when it comes to safety. Right. I should point out that what you're saying is that SpaceX did release a statement because if you are an avid space fan, when they do these static fire tests, which every single launch provider, at least in the United States, does, and mostly around the world as well, the payload is typically not on board. They just test fire the rocket, and then they later sometimes a few days later, sometimes a week later, like with OSIRIS-REx, they will then mate the payload to the actual rocket. So that way, if something does happen to the rocket, you don't lose the payload. This time, they did leave it on board. Their statement for doing this was because by adding it on during the static fire, it saves them a day of having to go in, mate everything, and get everything set up so they can launch one day sooner. That was their statement. Not verbatim but the essence of their statement. 
Yes, thank you for explaining that more fully, Sawyer. For those of you listening who might not follow this as closely as we do, but again, it's just that to me. You know, no matter what else comes from this, and and I'm really hoping, but perhaps not holding my breath, that lessons are learned by SpaceX about, you know, what what is important. At, at what point does a day not matter if you're not going to lose a valuable payload? But thank you, Sawyer, for explaining that more fully. That's what I'm here for. That and terrible jokes. Yes, yeah, Sawyer, the uh, satellite that was lost was uh, AMOS-6. AMOS stands for Affordable Modular Optimized Satellite. This was actually built by an Israeli company. And uh, they were most eager to get this one up because they had lost Amos 5 as well. And this was destined to replace a uh, aging satellite, Amos 2. Also, I believe, Internet.org, which was an uh, organization that was started by Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, was also due to use this particular bird for his project to try to bring the internet to backward areas. So there, there's a loss there, and that project has to go ahead and reboot and punt. Kat, to reiterate what you just said, yeah, I think it wasn't just this incident. This incident, I think, is, is really, really the tip of the iceberg. And the investigation, in my eyes, has to do a few things. One, I think it should, and I really wish Mark were here tonight, because he could go ahead and into more in-depth than I can on how the NTSB approaches, say, uh, uh, an aviation accident. And that's why I think this should be. When the NTSB gets in there, they go ahead and not just look for mechanical problems or, or things like that. They also examine things, okay, fine, there's a mechanical problem here, but what caused that? What was there some sort of procedural problem that precipitated the the failure? Was there a training problem that may have precipitated the failure? Is there a cultural problem that needs to be looked at and examined and fixed? And Kat, I am totally in agreement with you. They do have a cultural problem, like it or not. Yeah, well, no matter matter what the cause is, because it, in some ways, the cause of what happened could be not as important as what it revealed about the cultural issues with a company. Because, yes, this explosion or fast fire, however it will end up being characterized once the investigation is done, whether or not it could have been prevented through a safety measure or if it was something that could not have been prevented and it's just one of those things that happens... Anytime you're doing something with rockets and mechanics and anything, whether or not, you know, no matter what the cause of this incident was, the payload could have been saved. And that to me, again, and I know I keep saying this. It's about priorities. SpaceX is one of their big selling points is that they can do it faster and cheaper. And that's the thing is... Cheaper isn't always the best ethos. Now, I will say, I I think, you know, do they want these sort of things to happen? Do they want to be sloppy? Of course not. But one of the problems with trying to do things faster and cheaper is that you end up sometimes having things go wrong that didn't have to go wrong. Like, Like you said, they could have lost the rocket but not the payload just by focusing their priorities in a different place. And 
you have to look at the decision-making chain in the end. Ultimately, if I was a customer, that would worry me, especially after the insurers weighing in and would definitely be on my checklist of pros and cons for launch providers. And especially think about national security payloads. SpaceX fought to get a piece of national security launches. Yep. And what is the Air Force going to do now? They have been invited to be a part of the investigation. So after I read their statement, I thought, or invited themselves to be a part of the investigation. (laughs) But, you know, what happens to their customers? And not just commercial customers, because those are, a lot of the commercial customers might be less frequent customers. But looking at the Air Force or DOD, which would be a frequent customer because there are frequent national security launches and national security payloads. The thing is, they need both. These commercial, these new companies, new space, cannot survive just on governmental contracts or just on commercial customers, really. There's competition and there's only certain (laughs) entities that can afford to launch things to space or have a need to launch things to space at this nascent moment in the commercial space industry. I think that's really interesting to bring up, you know, what they need because this is talking about their future customer base because in the future for commercial companies to survive, they're going to need both government and private customers. Mm -hmm. One thing that I found interesting about the coverage of this incident was how many people mentioned the bulk of SpaceX's financing right now is from NASA contracts. And here's the thing with that. Two things I want to bring up. One, off of the military contract part, last episode, 807, we talked about how SpaceX was essentially passed over for one of those contracts. It went to ULA, and they didn't bat an eye. I think they're probably not regretting that decision now. The second thing in regards to those NASA contracts is, yeah, This was not a NASA launch. A lot of people mistook that. This was not a NASA launch. This was a SpaceX launch for a private company. But this is totally going to affect NASA. Because keep in mind, NASA has SpaceX for both resupply missions to the space station and for the eventual commercial crew, like we were just talking about. If this does not set both of those back... I will be extremely, extremely surprised because SpaceX had, I believe it was seven more missions scheduled for this year, including one ISS resupply mission at least. Great point, Sawyer. If I can just go ahead and and interject something. Cassie, you mentioned the whole better, faster, cheaper uh, mantra. That was something NASA used in its planetary programs back in the 1990s. In fact, uh, I I wrote a full report on, on something like that for school years ago. And... Well, it didn't go well, if you recall. We lost three Mars spacecraft and, and so on. And they were all for just, you know, really, really stupid reasons. And, and it, that's and the they thing, been, because they space is hard. If I hear that, no, I can't, I can't go. No, but here's that. the thing. So you can't cut corners. That's what I'm saying. That's my, what I'm saying. Space is hard under the best of circumstances. So if you start looking at ways to cut the process or cut corners in supplies or cut anywhere, you're running much larger risks than if you're doing that in any other circumstances. Anyway, exactly. exactly. Anyhow, to, fin- to finish the thought, the answer may lie with the way NASA solved that after the Mars Polar Lander accident. 
There was a whole report written in 2000. I'll have to see if I can get the link and, and put it up there, but that may add something to this. And hopefully NASA will give that report to the folks over at SpaceX to go ahead and take a look at and maybe even change some things because that, that's what the whole th the whole philosophy changed from better, faster, sh cheaper to three words, mission success first. And that's what the whole thing was all about. It was a whole new way of looking at things, a whole new way of of trying to go ahead and, and, and get these things going and, and working and get everybody on the same page working at, as, as a team. And look what's happened since. And that's the thing, you know, because you do, you make a great point. And wow, look at just what's happened in this year. We've been talking about New Horizons and from last year in Juno and all of these wonderful things that are really working and sometimes working way past when they're supposed to. So much success since that changed. And so it's really... This is one of the things that worried me about New Space. I'm a big supporter of New Space, and I think commercial should be taking over lower orbit. And, but I do worry sometimes that when it's all about profits, that it, it can be easy to forget the lessons that come from the people who, that, you know, all the people who've been doing this for much longer have learned over and over and over. And the truth exactly. is we're human, and, and we need to learn yeah. these lessons over and over. And, and here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing for me. When it comes to space, it's not if something will happen, but when. And for me, it's how do you respond, how do you recover, and how do you continue on? Those are the measures. This is not the first time SpaceX has lost a rocket. We saw how they responded, recovered, and continued on from the loss of the, the payload and the Dragon to the International Space Station. How are they going to respond now? Because yeah. this is, again, for me, I just have to come back to this point and drive on the point. Yes, they lost a rocket, and that's sad. But they also lost a payload. And that, to me, in this case, was preventable. And so I want to see how do they respond, recover, and continue on from a loss of a payload that had they not been trying to be faster and cheaper would not have happened. I think they've lost more than a payload. I think they've lost a lot of credibility. Uh, it's, it's. I mean, uh, and, and also, I, think, I believe I read that they're now going to have to pay for that payload. They've already offered Spacecom fifty million dollars and a free ride, but um, or by both, the way, one, they were one scheduled one to be bought out after this pending right, exactly, successful the mission. The Chinese are looking at buying the company. And and just an FYI, too, that company's net worth or that company's stock price went down almost 40% after the Huge. launch. So It's unfortunate because we, we need companies like SpaceX. We need SpaceX to be doing what it does. Yeah. But we need them to do it with more foresight, more thought, and more focus on safety. And the thing is, if they take this and they do take the lessons learned, it's like Kat made the point, and also we've talked about this so much, like after Orbital's problem, and of course SpaceX with the cargo mission to the ISS, 
we're not going to know, we're not going to have answers to a lot of these questions for quite some time because we're going to have to see not only how they handle it in PR terms right now, because right now it's a PR thing, but when they start figuring this out, we're going to have to see how they change their, are they going to truly learn from these lessons? Because if they are going to learn from these lessons, maybe down the road, they can get some credibility back, but you're right. They've taken a hit to their credibility. This is not their first incident. They've had a lot of success lately, but they've also had some problems. So it's Cassie, it's I think I think what's what the telling uh, point on this now, before you even get to that one other point, I am positive beyond a shadow of a doubt that there were absolutely no champagne corks popping over in Dulles after this happened. I think the folks over at Orbital ATK looked at that and said, well, it's up to us now. And it put literally put them in the driver's seat for OA5. And Terry's, the return to flight, has to work. So the pressure's on over there. And I'm sure the folks over at Wallops and the folks over at Dulles are feeling that right now. And by the way, Sawyer, I would, when you get back, I'd really love to talk to you about what the air was like at uh, the press site for that launch. And we're people thinking you know in the back of their head and keeping um last thursday in the back of their head as far as that particular failure is concerned but i think one of the real telling things as far as any cultural changes over at spacex if they're going to happen will be at isc i think cassie both you and uh, and cat are scheduled to go, go down there at the end of september in mexico elon musk was scheduled to present an outline for his Mars mission, specifically Red Dragon, but uh, some rumors had that he was also going to go ahead and talk about this Mars colonial transport where he's going to go ahead and start a colony on Mars by, I believe the time period is 2022 or 2024, which by my calendar is eight to 10 years from now. Yeah, good luck. If he goes ahead and starts talking about this and, and treats what happened last Thursday uh, you know, as you know, nothing to see here. Just, you know, don't worry about it. We got it in hand and and moves on to the next thing. I think that's going to be telling. He's got to go ahead and outline at that talk what he's going to do to bring SpaceX back, because I'm going to tell you one thing right now. Potential customers aren't going to give, you know, a good rat's patootie about Mars. They're going to be caring about getting their payload to low Earth orbit or geosync orbit. Because down here in a storage bin where these satellites may be sitting, they're not making any money. In fact, they're costing them money. And that's the bottom line right now. SpaceX has got to take care of its customers. And if they don't, they're not going to be around long, no matter how spectacular their equipment is. And that's sort of, I mean, that's how I've been feeling a bit about the Mars ambitions. Like, I mean, I think it's great that that's the long-term goal of Elon Musk, you know, that's, it's good to have long-term goals to work towards, but you do have to focus on some of the short-term ones first. And yeah, they, they, before they should be shuttling any sort of passengers who, especially who aren't well-trained and well-paid astronauts, people who are paying customers to fly to Mars, as he seems to be talking about, he's really going to need to make sure that everything is running perfectly smoothly when it comes to getting things 
to much closer destinations. Yeah, I mean, I agree. What, what, I'm, I'm looking. Well, I I'm agree looking here. I mean, what, what, I'm, what we're talking really here is some tough love. I mean, we want to mm-hmm. see the, we want to see them succeed. And yes, yeah. it's great to have great ambitions. It's good to have big dreams. That's where innovation. You can't skip the early steps, start. though. Start, but yes, you've got to go ahead and and keep your core business happy. And this mm-hmm. is something that I think a lot of people I talked to over the weekend, or should I say a lot of people that decided to talk to me over the weekend on Twitter, have sort of forgotten. You, you know, no, the, the core of SpaceX is not to get to Mars, okay? Bottom line. You may think that it's not. It's a company. It will go ahead, and its sole purpose is to provide a service, and that's it. Come on. Sometimes I feel like people think that SpaceX is more of a vanity project than it is because of who Elon Musk is and, oh, uh, the movie version of Iron Man, you know, was based on the real life Elon Musk. And, you know, he's got this whole aura thing going on. I'm sorry. He he, he mentioned that fast fire bit and I thought he was running for political office. That was my first deal. The thing exploded. People don't seem to grasp the concept that this is a business, (laughs) you know, like it's going to have to pay the bills in order to grow. And they need to to bring it back down to earth for a bit before they can make it to Mars. Right. Uh (laughs) But, you know, really. No, she's right. (laughs) I'm trying to. That is absolutely correct. (laughs) You know, the thing is, is that we need to see a little humility and some recognition of. (laughs) of the great responsibility that you have when you put things on rockets. Humility is how you learn. Mm-hmm. That's and, and I'm also sorry, right something now, SpaceX lacks. I, well, to be honest, right now, if I was a customer, whether NASA or even a private spaceflight customer, wanting to, to get on top of the Falcon 9, I don't know I'd get on that rocket right now, and I would pretty much give anything to go for space. I don't think I would get on top of SpaceX's rocket right now if you paid me. I'd have well, to see some major culture change. You know, it's kind of funny. One of my first thoughts was to uh, the crew that was selected to fly one of the first commercial crew flights. And I'm sure, you know, if, if Eric Bowe or somebody along those lines was standing out there watching that, he must have said, well, now I know what the Mercury 7 felt like. It's just, it's, you know what? I want SpaceX to succeed. I think it's important that SpaceX succeeds, but I want to do that in a way that inspires confidence. And right now they don't inspire my confidence. They need to earn our trust back. Yeah, I'm with you a thousand percent. They have to do that. And if Elon at IAC goes ahead and starts talking about Mars and, and all this other stuff, I would be absolutely incredulous if I were a potential satellite provider that needs a ride and i'd be sitting there and like okay fine all these mars aspirations great elon what are you going to do to go ahead and get your company back on track and if i don't hear that then i'm going to start wondering and elon needs to go ahead at iac is to just put every all of that wonder and all of those wonderings and all those people scratching their heads right now he needs to go ahead and put on a command performance and say, look, we are doing this. This is what we're going to do to recover. This is our plan. This is what, you know, we, we know we've got some cultural problems. We know we've got these problems and so on. We are going to address them. And, you know, I mean, it's I funny, mean, too, because the timing, I mean, it really would be the perfect opportunity to have 
that particular conference be so close to this and to be booked to specifically be speaking to like everybody there because you know everybody is going to be at that. And of course, as an industry conference, a lot of potential customers and customers are going to be right there. So I think you're right that that's the wise move. Mm -hmm. I keep reading that he's still going to be talking about Mars, but I, I guess not. we'll find out when we're in the room. Maybe it's because <laughs> uh, football season just started. But I keep thinking back to that 2012 Clint Eastwood football commercial. You know, it's halftime America, and I'm like, it's halftime, Elon Musk. What are you gonna do? Like, how do you come? How do you come back at into your second half? You've, you've gotten beat up in the first, right? So like, it's it's halftime, Elon. How do you respond? And Cassie and I will be there firsthand to hear his response at the International Astronautical Congress in Guadalajara at the end of this month. And Talking Space will have been there for both of his post-anomaly talks. I was at his talk at the ISS Research and Development Conference in 2015, just after the loss of CRS-7. And now the two of you will be at IAC, where he will be there after the loss of Amos-6. And I also want to point out the irony of the fact that just the day before that, there was an article posted on Spaceflight Insider that uh, SpaceX had said, we are still on track to try Falcon Heavy for the end of the year. I don't think that's going to happen anymore. No. But no. the place to stay for your information is right here at Talking Space, because as you just heard, we'll be there for all of Elon Musk's comments. We hope you'll stick with us through that. Now, I can guarantee you Twitter, email, all that is going to be filled with some comments on this one, because we've said quite a few things that I'm sure will raise some controversy and uh, some fans of SpaceX and some that are opposed to SpaceX are going to have some things to say. And we want to hear them. I know this is a lively discussion. I know this is not the last we're going to be talking about it. So let's get you guys involved in the conversation too, the listeners. Email us, mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. Boy, I'm excited to read those. Tweet us at TalkingSpace, Facebook.com slash TalkingSpace, and we are also on Google+. Now, before we end, there is one very important date that I would like to point out in space history. This episode, if all goes according to plan, should be coming out very close to September 9th, 2016. If we, we, if we rewind exactly seven years on September 9th, 2009, 09-09-09, the first ever episode of a yet-to-be-named podcast was released, featuring myself, Gene McCulka, and Mark Ratterman. Later, Gina Hurley would join us, and then followed by our fifth Beatle, Cassie, as well as now the amazing cat. Seven years later, and Talking Space is stronger than ever, officially accredited with NASA, so that way we can go and cover all of these events for you. We've gotten some inside scoop. We've talked to the people that have made the news, astronauts, scientists, explorers, you name it. Talking Space has done it. And in seven years, I never would have expected that we would have been able to do this much. So a big thank you to you, the listeners, for continuing to listen and for allowing us to have these opportunities over the last seven years and eight seasons of Talking Space. So a huge thank you. Gene, I'm sure you echo this as well. Good Lord, sir. Yeah, I remember when I first came up with this uh, whole concept back, oh, wow, 2002, and I was looking for team members to help me out on this. I actually pitched it to a local planetarium. I pitched it to 
an NSS chapter here locally, and it just didn't really permeate and take off. Uh, so I just kept it on the shelf, and then lo and behold, the NASA tweet-ups and uh, now called NASA socials happened and gave a uh, new life to this little little critter that had been sitting on the shelf. And uh, I've been quite blessed with the individuals that have graced the microphone with me on a weekly basis. I hope you're listening, Gina. Uh, we do miss you, and uh, but uh, we understand why. Uh, family first. But Sawyer, I, I, again, between you, Mark, Gina, uh, anybody else uh, that has appeared, and even the current team, uh, you, uh, Kat, and, and Cassie, this team's been awfully blessed with some really grand talent and some really grand uh, individuals that really, really care about what they want to say and really care about human spaceflight and, and planetary science and essentially reaching out into the stars. And uh, if you would have told me, Sawyer, back then about seven years ago that we were able to go ahead and pull off half the things we've done uh, with absolutely zero funding, I would have laughed at you. But uh, here we are uh, some seven years later and uh, completed a monumental uh, program that even tonight, uh, just just amazing stuff. I have to thank all of you out there that continue to download this program and think it worthy of your time. I hope you still continue to do so over the next year. We've got a lot going on. There's a lot to cover, a lot to explore. And uh, over in the coming months and, and in the coming years ahead, I, I hope you'll you'll hang on with us and, and enjoy the ride. So, again, it's because of you, the listener, that we do continue to do this. And my profound thank you for allowing this to continue. Yeah, I remember about two or three years after we started the show, as the shuttle program was nearing the end, we were worried, what are we going to do? What are we going to cover? How are we going to make this work? And in that time, we have talked to a seven-time shuttle astronaut. We have talked to professional meteorite hunters. We have talked with the ISS Science Office. We have gone to talks with Elon Musk. We have asked questions to Elon Musk in press conferences. We have asked questions to PIs and scientists and some of the biggest names that you've seen on TV for all these major missions with NASA and ESA and all these programs. And we've been able to talk to them and get their side of things on this show. And that's, I think, what makes Talking Space unique is not just the fact that we are able to get these amazing people, but the fact that you have an amazing group of people that can then talk about it. And that's everyone here on this show. So thank you to all of our panelists. And with that, I believe that's the perfect ending to this episode. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Always a lively discussion, Sawyer. And I just want to give a shout out to a friend of mine, Ocean McIntyre, who's uh, undergoing just a little bit of a tough time medically right now. So I want to go ahead and wish her well. Yes, indeed. Thank you as well for joining us, Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftless. Well, I had something kind of funny to say, but now I feel like uh, maybe we should end tonight on a bit of a more serious note, especially since we were talking about space being hard um, at the end. But, well, I'll just say, uh, go back to the beginning of the episode when we were talking about changing NASA's budget to support more astrophysics and get some warm fuzzies going. (laughs) That's my best (laughs) solution to that. No, but seriously, this has been a really packed week, and we're really excited to keep bringing all of this news to you, plus a whole lot more over the next month. It's going to be an even busier September than it was in August. Go Osiris Rex. Yes, and thank you all for joining us, Kat Robinson. 
always a pleasure to be here, Sawyer, everyone else. I, too, am really excited for OSIRIS-REx uh, because its PI is out of the University of Arizona, and I'm a proud Wildcat, so bear down. And just <laughs> to, to keep in mind this idea that, yes, space is hard, whether or not you like that phrase, but we keep doing it because it's worth doing. It's worth getting out there, discovering what there is, and, you know, to echo back what President Kennedy said, you know, we do these things because they are hard. Who else is going to do this if not us? So, you know what? I, I'm looking forward to see what happens next. And I am hoping that SpaceX surprises us and does well. And I have confidence that they're able to do it. Indeed. And thank you as well for joining us. I will echo Go Osiris Rex, especially because I will be down there covering the launch for Talking Space. So next episode, beware, the sounds of Osiris Rex are coming. And it's not a T-Rex, it's Osiris Rex, although it may sound very similar of a roar at the end. That's fantastic. Do you know I keep accidentally calling it Osirex instead of Osiris Rex? <laughs> <laughs> so it's just become my shorthand. I talk about it with Cassie and I just go, oh, yes, Osirex. So it's Tyrannosaurus Rex? Yes, the space dinosaur. I have two of them upstairs. The space dinosaur. <laughs> but yes, hopefully we will hear those two engines and that one solid rocket booster roar to life. And we'll have that here for you. We hope you'll join us. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.